We've been doing a little study on how we got our Bible. We've talked in the past about um, canonicity. That is, how do we know what books are part of God's Word? There are many writings from ancient times, even by the Israelite or Jewish people. How do we know which ones belong to God's Word? Let me start out today. We're going to dig into this a little bit more. Ask you a question. How many books are there in the Old Testament? Yeah, 66 books in the, the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament. Any other? Uh, anybody want to contradict 39, number 39? Okay. Well, you're, you're, you're right, and yet you're not right. Depend, the answer is it depends. But that's a good, that's the question that Protestants are going to give, right? If you're a Protestant, you grew up in the, the church or came to, came to faith in Christ in a Protestant church, you're liable to say 39. But if you're, if you were Jewish and looking at the Old Testament, you might say one number. If you're a Protestant or a Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox, you might give a different number. And I find it interesting as you look at the, what different branches of Christianity or different religions regard as the, the canonical scriptures, there's more disagreement about the Old Testament than about the New Testament. Let me just show you, uh, this is a, this is old school. I, I had a book that I, this was years ago, I actually scanned on a computer and put it up here. So, it probably took me longer to do that than to just to type it in myself. But anyway, this is what normally Protestants would see as the divisions, the major divisions in the books in the Old Testament. So we have the, what we call the law, the first books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Uh, we have the historical books, Joshua, basically through Esther, the, the history uh, after the, as the Jews took the promised land and uh, then just as we're, we're getting to the, the end of the Old Testament history. We have the poetry books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalm, Song of Solomon. You can see them set up in your Bibles as poetry. And then we have the prophetic books, and we separate those into major and minor. Major, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And Lamentations was written by who? Jeremiah. So it's kind of lumped in there together. And then Ezekiel and Daniel. Then we tend to we put people in the minor category. They tend to be the shorter uh, prophetical books. Not that they're maybe less important, but because they tend to be smaller. We know less about them. So roughly these, these several categories. Now, if we look at the, the way that the, the Jews... Look at it by the way. So, there, yeah, as you said before, 39 books. Count them all up. Malachi is the 39th. You look at the Jewish scriptures, the way they organize them. And we have the law, again, the, the Torah, the first books, five books, the books of Moses. Uh, the prophets, the Nebuhim, uh, and they call them the former and the latter prophets. And <clears throat> notice here they group, they have Joshua judges where we would have first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. They group those together, and we also see chronicles here together, so they don't separate those two books. And then we have uh, the, the former and latter prophets, even though we wouldn't call ourselves Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, prophetic books in, in our normal way of saying things. That, that's how the, the, the Jews saw that. So you have the law, the prophets, and then the writings, the Ketubim, poetic books, and then they call the five roles here. Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, and then historical books with Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. So 
the, the law, Torah, prophets, Nebuhim, and writings, Ketubim, these, these three categories. We actually saw that, and Jesus talked about the writings of the, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, and the Psalms kind of end up in this category, or general, the, the writings category. Another word, Pentateuch, here. You might hear that, uh, this refers to a the five-fold volume, of Penta, meaning five. Uh, so there's a f- five volumes of Moses' writings. And we have the, the, the prophets. Uh, I think I mentioned here we have the 12 kind of grouped in. What we call the minor prophets are kind of all encapsulated in the, the 12 there. And then the former prophets, again, are, are historical. The latter prophets are what we might think more of the, the prophetic books. Yeah, I don't, I don't know for sure exactly why. Uh, it may be historical because Chronicles came later, and it's a, a it's a more condensed version of Israelite history. That, but I don't know exactly for sure. Or if I did know, I forgot. How's that? Yeah. Um, good question. Um, I think it's be- because of the maybe the subject matter. Um, and it tends to be fairly small. I think one of the things you want to consider in all this is they had their writings in what? Scrolls, right? They didn't have a book like we have. It's easy. To, you can carry around your whole Bible. And this is a big Bible. You probably, some of you have small Bibles, so you can read those little tiny print Bibles. You can carry it all. But when you have these giant scrolls, you try to sort of consolidate things so that they're, they're easy to use and to carry. And so if you have, already have a giant, Book of Jeremiah might be asking a little much to even put the the last few uh, those chapters of Lamentations along with it. Let, let's take some of the smaller books and stick them all in one roll. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one benefit to not using vowels in, in your language. It helps keep things compact, no spaces and that kind of stuff. Yeah, they, they used their space efficiently because it was so expensive and, and time-consuming and space-consuming to write things down. Yeah. Yeah, Lamentations is all poetry. Jeremiah is a lot of poetry, prophetic, but also historical, what we would call prose as well. Yeah. Now, you guys might remember Josephus. Josephus lived in the time after Christ, and he referred to 22 books. But So we have 24 listed here, but Josephus mentioned 22, and that may be because how many letters in the Hebrew alphabet? You know? 22. So they like to kind of find things in groups of 22. Um, and so it may be that Josephus uh, did uh, think of Ruth as appended to Judges because they take place during the same time. And also if you take Lamentations and, and associate with Jeremiah, that kind of becomes your 22 books. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, we'll we'll get to some of those things in a few minutes. Yeah, good. You're getting you're thinking ahead. Stop thinking, everybody. Just just listen. I'm kidding. I'm glad you're thinking. It's it's good. It's a good sign that you're engaged. Anyway, if you guys weren't thinking, I would be worried. Now, if we look at the the books, the names of the Old Testament books that everybody knows: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But you might recognize that those aren't. Hebrew words; those are are Greek words or or, or uh, Latin words, or Greek through, through the Latin. And the if you're if you were Jewish and you're learning the names of the, the books, the names come from the first words in Hebrew. So instead of deciding, well, this book is about this, we, Genesis is about beginning, so let's call it Genesis. They just take the first word or words of the the book. That's what it's called. So. The book of Genesis is called Bereshith, which is in the beginning. Um, the, the name for the book of Exodus is names. It's the Hebrew for names, Shemoth. Or in the book of Numbers, it's what's translated in the desert or in the wilderness. They're called, uh, let's see, Bedid, uh, sorry, Bemidbar. Sorry, my Hebrew is, is very lacking. So that's how the, the Jews, the Israelites, would refer to the books by the first word of the, of the book itself. And another thing is that our book order, let me go back to the previous slide. This is our Protestant book order. This comes to us by way of the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. So the, the Vulgate became the standard scripture in the at least the, the Western church in the centuries after Christ, um, translated by, remember who translated the, the Vulgate? Jerome, good. And the word Vulgate comes from the word for which we get vulgar, but it means common. So the Vulgate is the, the scriptures in the common language of the time, which was Latin. So the books in the Vulgate by Jerome were ordered in this way, and so that's where we get the order ourselves. Now, I mentioned uh, also these Hebrew terms, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketubim. If you take the first letters, and, and the Jews were kind of fond of this sort of um, acronyms or ways of sort of playing with words or organizing things, you have the Torah, so you have a T, N, and K. And so they refer to their holy scriptures. Not, the Jews don't call it the Old Testament, right? It doesn't make sense to them to call it the Old Testament. But they would call it the Tanakh. So you take the T and the N and the K, you get Tanakh. And so that's a, a way, more even a scholarly way of referring to the Old Testament without sort of, you might say, prejudicing it towards the Christian point of view. We have an Old New Testament. But if you're looking at it from a maybe historical perspective, you think about it as the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketubim, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Now, if you were if you were a Roman Catholic church and I asked you how many books there were in the Old Testament, you might say 46. If you're Eastern Orthodox, you might say 49. And we'll look at, again at the reasons a little bit later. And you might ask yourself, why the discrepancies? Well, as with the Jewish scriptures, there's discrepancies because they would uh, consider books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings as individual books, but there are other reasons, basically disagreements, about which books should be included, which ones are canonical, which ones are truly the Word of God. And so for Protestants in particular, one of the central issues has been, say, what did Jesus, Paul, and the other apostles consider to be the Scriptures? When Paul said, all Scripture is inspired by God, he was referring to something. When Jesus says, the Scripture shall not be broken, he's referring to a collection of writings, 
So what are those writings? How do we understand that? And so if we know what Jesus and Paul and the other apostles thought about the the books that are considered scripture, then that will inform what we today would view as scripture. Now, there are a number of criteria you might look at when you're considering which books are part of the canon. And these come from a book I've referred to before, um, the General Introduction to the Bible by Norman Geisler and William Nix. And they give a number of inadequate criteria for the Old Testament canon uh, determination. One is that age determines canonicity. Now, if you've ever looked at the, maybe read some ancient history, it, it, it almost, because it sort of feels like the Bible, you might be tempted to think, well, this is old, and therefore uh, you're more inclined to believe it's true. And if there are things that are sort of religious, you might be, again, inclined to think maybe it's part of the Bible. Um, you give them authority, because we're used to giving that respect to the Old Testament. But you might remember, we saw this before, we won't turn there right now, but Numbers 21, 14 refers to the book of the wars of the Lord. And Joshua 10, 13 talks about the book of Jasher. So there's these books, there's other books. Uh, certainly the kings of ancient times, as much as they could, would write down what happened. You can imagine a daily diary, in a sense, of what happened during the reign of David or Solomon or the other kings. Those were written at some point, and now they're lost to us be very interesting to know what happened day to day for for these parts of history. We just don't have that information anymore. But these other books, like the books of the War of the Lord, the book of Jasher, and other books, were not part of the canon, and other books, instead, were recognized as having canonical authority shortly after being written. Certainly, the books of Moses were recognized as God's word right away. And In God's providence, I think, many of these ancient manuscripts are lost to us. And while they would have been of much value in understanding the history of the the Bible, there is, of necessity, no issue in viewing them as canonical because we just don't have them. Another invalid or inadequate criterion is to say that Hebrew language determines canonicity, but there were other Hebrew books that were not accepted and, in fact, there are portions of Daniel and Ezra that are in Aramaic. And there are lots of Aramaic uh, writings from the later part of what we call biblical history, Old Testament history, that would also be useful to us but are not part of God's word as we see it. Another inadequate criterion is agreement with the Torah determining canonicity. Now, no word from God would contradict a previous word, but there are many works that the Jews would say that agreed to the Torah, but were not considered canonical, that is, they didn't come from God. Like that the Talmud was a body of law based on the Torah, and it's considered authoritative for Orthodox Jews. This is part of their, their law, but it's not viewed as canonical. It might be sort of at one remove from the canonical works. Or the Midrash was an exposition of the Hebrew Scriptures. Again, it's important to Jews, but not canonical. So you can imagine, let's take it to our own day. If we had... Uh, Commentary on the book of Jude. So find a short book, first, second, third, third John, maybe third John, a short book, and you could write a commentary that completely agreed with third John. Maybe it would be completely correct in all that is stated, but that doesn't make it canonical just because it agrees fully with what the writings of Scripture say. Another inadequate criterion is the religious value that determines canonicity. 
And there are books of the Apocrypha, we'll look at a little later, that have religious value. We have shelves of books that have religious value on, in our homes, many of us. But are they truly inspired by God just because they have religious value? Maybe they've encouraged us that, that have changed our lives, perhaps. It doesn't make them God's word. And then one last inadequate criterion is acceptance by the religious community determining canonicity. But we want to ask ourselves, in this case, which came first? Is a book accepted by the people of God because it's the word of God or vice versa? Well, we want to accept what's written because it is God's word. We don't determine it God's word because we give value to it. We want to understand what God has written down, not to say what God has written down. And the ultimate issue in all of this determination about what's canon, what is God's word, and what isn't, is that it's God that determines canonicity, and that God's people recognize that. Said another way, inspiration determines canonicity. That is, it's maybe an artifact, you could say, of inspiration that God uh, has this canon, these, these books that are those that are truly his word, and that's that's the canon. We don't determine the canon. We recognize the canon in God's word. J.I. Packer said this, The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation, and similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. Some people mistakenly say, Isaac Newton invented gravity, or Benjamin Franklin invented electricity. But no, they discovered it. It was already there. So in a similar sense, the canon was already there. Just God's people recognized it over time that it was and truly God's word. So having seen some reasons why we we don't want to say that something is canonical, how did God's, fact, God's people, in fact, determine which Old Testament books were canonical? Now, as I said before, Protestants have focused on what the Jews of Jesus' time would have considered the scriptures. So what were Jesus and Paul referring to when Jesus said scripture can't be broken and Paul said all scripture is inspired by God? Well, there are several criteria, and we'll look at these. These, we might say that the better criteria for determining whether something is canonical or to understand whether something is canonical. And not all books, by the way, meet all these criteria. So first of all, was it written by a prophet? So we see things like, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. You have, for example, Moses calling in the book of Exodus. We might look at the first words of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying... By the way, so we have this, this calling of Jeremiah and this revelation to Jeremiah that's grounded in historical fact... Verse 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. 
But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pick, pluck up, and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So we have here, now you can disbelieve it or believe it, but we have this uh, record of God speaking to Jeremiah, calling Jeremiah and saying, I want to put my words in your mouth. In fact, later on, we saw this last time in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is told to write down, or through Baruch, to write down the words that God has given to him. So God reveals himself, the word of the Lord comes to a prophet, and the prophet speaks on behalf of the Lord. The, the prophet gives God's word. So it's important to consider whether the writings come from a prophet of God. And sometimes we see that the words of a prophet are attested to by miracles, although not always. Interesting, we see um, prophecies of uh, Elijah and Elisha. Uh, they may have met, had many other prophecies that we don't even know about that weren't written down, but many miracles performed by these two men, but not always miracles by the other prophets. In fact, those miracles tend to be fairly rare in the Old Testament. I mean, how many miracles did David do? He was not a miracle worker. Isaiah, Jeremiah, very very few miracle workers in the Old Testament. You have you have Moses, you have uh, Elijah, Elisha. Beyond that, very few. Let me quote again from uh, Geisler and Nix, speaking about being written by a prophet. The presence of a book in the canon down through the centuries is evidence that it was known by the contemporaries of the prophet who wrote it to be genuine and canonical. And this is speaking about anonymous writings. Despite the fact that succeeding generations lack definitive knowledge of who the author was or what his prophetic credentials were. So, first, second Samuel, we think mostly written by Samuel, but we don't know that for sure. Um, the Kings and Chronicles, we don't necessarily know who wrote them. We have some suppositions. But the fact that they were recognized by the, the ancient Israelites or ancient Jews as coming from the prophetical strain of, of writing indicates that they are, were seen by those, those Jews as part of God's word. Another criterion is, does it tell the truth? Does it tell the truth? For example, does it agree with previous revelation? Obviously, God won't contradict himself, so true prophets won't contradict other words from God. We have the Deuteronomy chapter 13. Verse 1 says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, so they are actually able to do these signs and wonders, and the sign of the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to, that words, to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So if a prophet is even able to do miracles, but he contradicts God's clear word about don't worship false gods, then you are to not listen to that one. In fact, you should even put him to death, it says in verse 5. You might also remember Acts 17, verse 11, as Paul is preaching. We have these Bereans, the Jews in Berea listening to Paul. They were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So we have Paul, in this case, with new revelation about Jesus Christ, 
but it's not completely brand new. Paul's word about Christ was grounded in what? The, the Jewish scriptures, right? And so Paul says, the scriptures tell us that this one is coming, and I'm telling you now that this one who is coming is Jesus, the Messiah. The Bereans said, well, that's nice, Paul. We're not going to take your word for it, though. We're going to actually search the scriptures daily, it says here, to see if what he says is so. So they're searching their scripture, their body of understanding of what God's word is to see if what Paul said is true. And Paul, if he said anything that was against the scriptures, the Bereans would have set it aside, would have ignored him. Another sort of truth uh, criterion is doesn't tell the truth about the past. That is, is it historically accurate? If it's completely made up, ridiculous history, then we could think it's not truly God's word. Alternately, does it tell the truth about the future? Does it tell the truth about the future? Deuteronomy, again, chapter 18, verse 21, says, You may say in your heart, how will we know that the word which the Lord has has not spoken? And when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So if the the... The book in question tells untruths about the past or about the future. It's not God's word. Now, truth alone doesn't make scripture. We could all write books that tell the truth about God, for example. And so this makes this particular principle about truth more a test for false books. Now, some of the books in the Apocrypha, again, we'll look at that in a few minutes, were rejected because they contained false doctrine or historical inaccuracies or promote immoral behavior. So we can set those works aside as not being God's word. Another criterion about whether something is in the canon or not is does it demonstrate God's power? Does it demonstrate God's power? You recall Hebrews 4.12. We heard about this just a few weeks ago from Tom. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And Second Timothy 3.15 says that from childhood, you, that is Timothy, have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, this may be somewhat subjective, but you're looking at some, some ancient writings, and does it truly demonstrate the, the power uh, of God and how it encourages people or brings them closer to God. And then one last criterion here is, was it accepted by the people of God? Was it accepted by the people of God? And sometimes the books were accepted immediately, again, like the books of Moses. Sometimes it took a while, though, as when Isaiah's word was rejected. Sometimes in their own time, the people didn't accept the words of the prophets. You might remember as Isaiah is called in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, it says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening but do not perceive. Keep on looking but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And so, 
and it says how long, verse 11. So Isaiah, if you, in the, the moments after he gave his prophecy from the Lord, asked the people, is this God's word, what would they say? No, not at all. But we know it was God's word, not, not just because of how the people accepted it at that moment, but over time, did they recognize it as God's word indeed. Now, having looked at these criteria, we don't know much about the historical process of recognition of the Old Testament canon. It's just lost to us. But it seems to have been c- completed by about 400 B.C., shortly after Malachi wrote, but at least by, say, 200 B.C., the, the canon of the Jews, the, the Israelites, was set in these times. Now, there are several categories. of Any questions so far, by the way? Probably lots. I see those hands. And Norman Geisler and William Nix, yeah. Yeah, their, their book is called The General Introduction to the Bible. Let's look at a few categories of these Old Testament writings. Uh, there are some books that were accepted by everyone. And of the 39 books in our canon, we recognize as Protestants, 34 of them were recognized and accepted by all. Uh, pretty universally. Anyway, all except Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Ezekiel, and Proverbs. So we get to then the books that were disputed by some. Um, again, Song of Solomon, because of its supposed sensual, non-spiritual character, perhaps. In Song of Solomon, God is not really mentioned, except when speaking of things like the very flame of the Lord. Although, most English translations will say something like a mighty flame. So but it's not as though God, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so in the book of Solomon, for example. So it doesn't seem to be as, you might say, spiritual as some other of the Old Testament books. Uh, Ecclesiastes, there's some skepticism about this because it it se- seems like such a a down sort of book, a, a book that talks so much about how, how life is futile, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, that sort of thing. Um, but when you see it from the right perspective, you see somebody who's trying to live life without reference to God, and that's when the vanity comes in. In fact, you get to the end of the, the book. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, 14 says, The conclusion, when all has been heard after all these chapters of vanity, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring it to every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And so, on the surface, perhaps, Ecclesiastes might not seem to be that much of a, a, a book for, for God's people to read, but when you, when you understand it well, it certainly does, and it challenges you to see life with a, a spiritual eye. The book of Esther is also uh, was under a dispute because, again, the name of God is not mentioned. God is not even referred to although some have seen the name of Yahweh cleverly hidden in several places as an acrostic, kind of a uh, looking, looking for the, the letters for Yahweh. But when you read the book of Esther, you see God's providence everywhere. He's the, the unnamed character who's driving the whole narrative of the book of Esther. So God, while he's not mentioned, he's certainly there. Uh, Ezekiel was also disputed. Some thought this book went against the Mosaic Law because it had so much of the, the temple worship that was different from what was in the book of Moses. But there's no not a lot of strong evidence for this particular keeping out Ezekiel from the canon. And then the Proverbs was 
disputed by some, um, and may have been because of some supposed internal contradictions. And you might have had people bring this up before. But Proverbs 26, verse 4 and 5 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So you have the same, when you say, you answer not a fool according to his folly, then the very next verse it says, answer a fool according to his folly. And so it doesn't sound like, to some people, that this could be God's word if it has a contradiction just within one verse. But these sorts of supposed contradictions are just a matter of proper interpretation. So if you understand what the writer of Proverbs is doing in, in this, these verses, you, you don't answer a fool in a foolish way. You answer a fool in a wise way. It makes, it's, it's easier to say it that way, but it's less poetic, you might say. So these, these five books that we recognize as God's word, uh, again, were in dispute over some time. In fact, they were all accepted by the Jews of Jesus' day as being part of the scriptures. So even though there was some dispute before then, by the time of Jesus, they were, they were accepted as well. Now, there are some books that were rejected by everyone. These are regarded by by many as uh, false, forged, uh, inauthentic, that sort of thing. There's a book of Enoch you might have heard of before. There's an assumption of Moses. These books are possibly quoted in the book of Jude. And there's no settled list of these books, uh, these ones that were rejected by everyone. Uh, But most of these books, as Geyser and Nick say, were comprised of dreams, visions, and revelations in the apocalyptic style of Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah. So books like the Book of Jubilee, the Book of Adam and Eve, I won't list them all, Martyrdom of Isaiah, a couple of Enoch's, and so forth, these are all the books that were rejected by all, although they might be seen as valuable in some ways. And then there are those books that are accepted by some. We call this the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha. Um, so I'm trying to figure out. How, I think I can finish this. So. The Apocrypha. Now, before we get to the, Apocrypha, the Apocrypha, there's a couple of canons here. There's the Palestinian canon, which was the canon. Again, this is the the list of books that are recognized as God's word. The canon that Jews and Protestants recognize, the Palestinian canon. There's also an Alexandrian canon named for Alexander Egypt. And this is the place where the Septuagint was translated. Now, what was the Septuagint? Some of you may know that term, Septuagint. Yeah, good. It's, yeah, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament done about 250 BC or so. So before Christ, some Jewish scholars said, well, we have Jews living all over the Greek-speaking world. We need to have scriptures available to them in a language they understand. And so they translated the Septuagint. It's called Septuagint because there are 70 men. So if you have any Septuagenarians here, you don't have to raise your hand. If you're Septuagenarian, you're in your 70s. We had 70 scholars or so who translated the Bible from the Old Testament, the Tanakh, from Hebrew and some Aramaic into Greek in the centuries before Christ. And that was done in Alexandria, Egypt. And this canon had 14 or 15 more books, depending on how you count them. And so that's where these apocryphal books come from. And no one is sure where that term apocrypha got that designation. The word apocrypha means hidden. Hidden. 
And again, quoting Geisler and Nix, the disputation about the Apocrypha centers and the reason for its being so labeled is hidden to be used in a good sense, indicating that these books were hidden in order to be preserved, or in the sense that their message was deep and spiritual? Or is the word hidden used in the bad sense, indicating that the books were of doubtful authenticity, or, uh, authenticity rather, or spurious? So these apocryphal books are generally recognized by Protestants as not being part of the canon. Roman Catholics recognize most of them on the Council of Trent. We'll see that a little later. And Eastern Orthodox have regarded them as quasi-canonical, sort of canonical, sort of half-canonical. Now we have a number of reasons for rejecting the Apocrypha. Even though we might see some allusions in the New Testament, there are no quotations from the Apocrypha in the New Testament. And again, these are books that are written before the time of Christ. Uh, one reason we reject them is that... Um, oh, sorry, I should mention, there are a few of these books. I'll just name them. Uh, First, Second Esdras, uh, Tobit, uh, Book of Judith, First, Second Maccabees. Those are of good historical importance. This isn't all of them, by the way. <clears throat> um, there are also some additions to Daniel and Esther. There's the Song of the Three Children. That would be Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Uh, story of Susanna and Bell and the Dragon, all parts of the, the time around Daniel. <clears throat> and then some additions to Esther. Now, we look at Esther in our Bible, the mentions of God. If you take this extra stuff, there are mentions of God, some, some things, a dream, <clears throat> and so forth, some other things that refer to God, but they're, were not part of the original book of Esther. <clears throat> now, why, why do we reject these? Apocryphal books. First of all, we have unbiblical teaching. Unbiblical teaching. For example, we have prayers for the dead. Second Maccabees, uh, twelve thirty-nine to forty-five. I won't read the whole thing because we just don't have time. But there are some some men who have fallen in a battle. It says, for if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sin. So there's the idea of praying for the dead. You see that in Roman Catholic circles, don't you? It's interesting. We have some sort of um, tragic event. Some people say, a bunch of people die. People will say, well, pray for the families of those who have died. But others will say, pray for the dead and, their, and their, those who have been affected by this. And you can see the different uh, view of, you know, Protestants believe that once you're dead, then you, you go to your reward, whether it be heaven or hell. But others will say, no, you can still pray for those dead people. And that partly comes from this prayer in Second Maccabees. Um, others would be things like purging of sin by good works. Tobit mentions this. Almsgiving. Uh, saves from death and purges away every sin. That's spoken by an angel named Raphael. And so you can see how Roman Catholics, at the time of the Council of Trent, when they said these books are canonical as well, in the wake of the Reformation, would be more likely to accept writings indicating that there, you could do, you could make prayers for the dead and purging your sin by good works. Yeah, Susan.
yeah, that's also a common thing, is praying not just for the dead, but praying to the dead, which is definitely not a Protestant practice. But that, some of that sort of comes from these, what we regard as non-canonical books. Also, we want to look look out for historical and chronological errors. Like we said before, if something is, is wrong, then it can't be God's word. And so here's an example from Tobit. Again, don't have time to go through the whole thing. But here's a, a man in Tobit. He was supposed to be alive when Jeroboam revolted against Judah in the days of Solomon, so about 931 B.C. But he was also alive when Israel was conquered by Assyria, 722 B.C. So Tobit, if this was true, would have been over 200 years old. And so this doesn't make any sense. So historically, Tobit could not be part of God's word. Uh, another example, the book of Judith claims that Nebuchadnezzar reigned over Nineveh as king of Assyria instead of Babylon. Another uh, false historical claim. Um, A third reason to reject the Apocrypha is um, it was written late, after Malachi, after Jews believed the prophecy had ceased. Josephus said this, It is true our history has been written since Artaxerxes very particularly, but has not been esteemed of like authority. That is, that is in the, the centuries, <clears throat> the few centuries before Christ, not esteemed of the, like authority with the former by our forefathers, because there has not been an exact succession of the prophets since that time. So after the time of Malachi, the Jews didn't see prophets until, as we would say, John the Baptist. Um, the Talmud even says this, after the latter prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. So we have this idea that the prophecies, the revelation from God, had ceased after Malachi, around that time. <clears throat> and then, an important point, made this several times, is that these books were not accepted by the Jews of Jesus' day as canonical. So there are, for example, Josephus, who I mentioned before, excludes the Apocrypha when he's talking about God's word. Uh, I said before, Jesus and the New Testament writers never quote the Apocrypha. But there are many quotes from the canonical books, and we could list them for hours. Um, many church fathers rejected the idea of the Apocrypha as scripture. And no canon or council called the Apocryphal inspired until nearly four centuries after Christ. So in the time of Christ and just after Christ, we don't see these books regarded as canonical. Jerome, we talked about him before, the one who translated the Vulgate. He lived about 340 to 420. He said the church uses the apocryphal, apocrypha, quote, for example, of life and instruction of manners, but does not apply them to establish any doctrine. In fact, he didn't translate them into Latin initially, but he did translate a few of them later on. <clears throat> and after his death, translations of the rest were put into the Vulgate from a previous Latin translation. So this Vulgate that the Catholic Church reveres so highly was not all translated by Jerome because he didn't think that these books were part of God's word. F.F. <clears throat> F. Bruce, the scholar, said this, there's no evidence that these books were ever regarded as canonical by any Jews, whether inside or outside Palestine, whether they read the Bible in Hebrew or Greek. <clears throat> so, again, the Jews didn't see it as God's word, so we don't need to see it in our day as God's word. <clears throat> Real brief, I'm just about done here. No, the the Torah is the first five books of Moses. So, 
Some Jews did, Sadducees did, but the, the Jews in the main regarded what we consider the Old Testament books as God's word. Yeah. And that's, again, the issue over all this is what did Jesus see as God's word? What did Paul see as God's word? Peter, the Jews of that time, how do they see it as God's word? And if that's good enough for Jesus and Paul, it's good enough for me. <clears throat> uh, the Catholic view, again, was established at the Council of Trent, and that was in 1546, which my math isn't perfect, but it's 15 centuries after Jesus was around. So it took the church, the Catholic Church, a long time to say that these are the books to be regarded as canonical. And this is a response, of course, to the Reformation happening 30 years or so earlier. And so they said this, But if anyone received not as sacred and canonical the said books entire with all their parts, that is, including the Apocrypha, as they have been used to be read in the Catholic Church, and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate tradition, and knowingly and deliberately con- condemn the traditions aforesaid, let him be anathema. The Reform view, on the other hand, is this from the Westminster Confession. This is 1646, a century later. It lists the 66 books of the Bible that we recognize today, and it says, the books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of the Scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the Church of God, nor to be any uh, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. So, having said all that, are the, the apocryphal books valueless? I'd say no, they're not. Um, they are important as literature and as historical information about the time between the Testaments when the history is reliable. So 1st and 2nd Maccabees give us a lot of information about what happened to the Jews in the time between Malachi and the time of Christ. But we don't need to see them as God's word to recognize the historical value. R.C. Sproul said this, that they provide the closest view of what we have of the period between Malachi and John the Baptist. So it's good if you want to be familiar with some of these books, but don't take them as God's word. Don't elevate them to the point where they're your devotional material, say. Good historical input, in many, many cases, probably correct, uh, but <clears throat> don't accept them as God's word. All right, well, we are over time, I think. I better close. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it over the many centuries, for helping us to understand what is truly your word and what is not. There are many claimants to speak from God, and not all of them are truly from you. We pray you would give us the diligence to understand your word, to, to stay in it, to, to seep ourselves, our minds in it, that to be full of your word, that we might love it and live it for your sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.